Okay, we are continuing with Perkyavos. We are up to number five, Mishnah Hay, in the first chapter. I have one extra. Yoisi ben Yochanan ish Yerushalayim Oimer. Yoisi ben Yochanan from Yerushalayim says the following. Yehi veischo pasuach larvacha. Your house should be open wide. Viu aniyam b'nei veisecho. And you shall, it shall be that the poor people shall be members of your household. Vi'al tarbesicha im ha'isha. And do not conversate excessively with the woman. Bi'ishtoi amru. And that's speaking about one's wife. Kavachaymer be'eshes chaveiro. Certainly all the more so someone else's wife. Mikan amru chachamim. And from here the chachamim say, from here the wise men say, Kol hamar besicha im ha'isha. Anyone who... Is mar besicha anyone who has excessive conversation with the woman? Goyrem rali atzmo causes evil to himself. Uvotel medivrei Torah nullifies Torah. The seifa yarish gehenim, and in the end, will inherit gehenim. Oh boy! Wow! I feel very loved. I think that's enough for today. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Okay, let's try and understand this to the best of my ability to explain. Before we go through the Mishnah itself, because this Mishnah is really standing upon a pillar of Judaism, and that is marriage. What is marriage all about? And for today's discussion, hopefully I won't make too many enemies, but in order to really understand today's Mishnah, we're going to have to deal with certain uh, certain conditions that are a given. And the first one is, is that men and women are different. Hopefully that's not going to be a point of contention in this room. Um, but if it is, I'm happy to discuss it. And we're going to have to deal with certain conditions that are predominantly male and certain conditions that are predominantly female. Whenever we're speaking about things that are predominantly one species, one sex or another, we are obviously speaking about what is generally the case. Are there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions. There are exceptions to every rule, with the exception of that rule. And there are always going to be situations where one male is more feminine in his tendencies, and you will also have females that are more male in their characteristics. But we're going to have to deal with certain assumptions that there are generalizations that are true. I'd like to speak about marriage. Before we speak about this Mishnah, I'd like just to speak about marriage. What's the purpose of marriage? What is the reason that we are supposed to get married according to Judaism? And contrary to what is perhaps popular, marriage is not about love. Love is a crucial factor in marriage. Hopefully no one will misunderstand me on that. But one is not meant to get married for love. The Torah says specifically why one is supposed to get married. And someone already, Liz, you already quoted the verse. The Torah says... In the creation of man and woman. 
Vayoyimer Hashem Elokim, and God said, Lo tov heyoyis ha'adam levado, it is not good for man to be alone. Eselo ezer kinegdo, I will make for him an ezer kinegdo. What is fascinating about this verse, before we delve into the depth of it, is that this is the first comment that the Torah makes about human existence. Not only is it the first comment that the Torah makes about human existence, it is also the first negative statement that the Torah makes. This is the first time that the Torah makes a negative assessment, low tov. The very first comment that the Torah makes about human existence corresponds with the very first time that the Torah says something is not good. Lo tov liot adam levado. It is not good for man to be alone. In other words, aside from the profound insight that they get, that this gives to male persona, the male persona and his ego, it is also telling us that the idea of being alone, the idea of being singularly focused, the idea of being an individual and self-centered is not a good thing. And therefore, the Torah is telling us the purpose of marriage is to create an entity which we are thinking outside of ourselves, that we become an unselfish individual. That is the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is so that we as humans grow out of our natural, selfish, inward thinking outlook on life and instead become something that is thinking much bigger than that, thinking outside of ourselves, trying to become great, trying to become big. There are other relationships. All of life is about relationships. We spoke about that in a previous class, I believe, just for a blip of a moment. However, none of them are to the extent that forces one to think outside of themselves, like marriage. Other relationships, yes, you can think outside of yourself, but nothing forces you to think outside of yourself, like marriage. And to demonstrate that that is indeed what the purpose of marriage is, you can see that in the context of the verses in the Torah. If one was editing the Torah, which is always fun to do, to look at the Torah and say, how would I write it? Which is, by the way, how one is supposed to approach Torah. But if one is editing the Torah, what should the very next verse be? The Torah says, Lo tov liot ha'odom levado, it is not good for man to be alone. Taselo ezer kenegdo. I will make for him an ezer kenegdo. We'll speak about that for a minute, what that is. I will make for him a helper corresponding to him. What should the very next pusik be? The very next verse should be, and God made for him his Azer Kinegdo. But that's not what happens. A very interesting, peculiar thing happens. The very next verse says, <clears throat> that God created the animals. And all the birds. And he brought the animals and the birds to man. To see what man would call each one. And whatever man called these creatures, that became its name. 
And he called names to each and every one of the animals and the birds in Shamayim and all the animals of the field. And then it ends off. But man did not find a helper for himself. Without getting into the complexities of what exactly was going on here with man giving names to the animals, it is a unbelievably profound discussion as to what exactly the nature of man and woman is. We don't have time for that today because otherwise we'll never get to the Mishnah in Perkyavos. But it's clear that man was looking for a relationship. And this goes to address what Rina said earlier, that man was looking for someone that was compatible to build and to work with and did not find that. Man was looking for a compatible relationship to build and to live and went and looked at all the animals and did not find one that was suitable. I think to really understand this, we'll have to take a moment and speak about the concept of names. Don't worry, we'll get to the Mishnah Perkei I'll see to it. In Hebrew, unlike English, words have meaning. In English, I don't think words really have meaning unless you go and study Latin and Greek and you can trace the words back to their original source. The words themselves are almost arbitrary. That's not true with many other languages. Hebrew is not, uh, does not have the monopoly on this. However, I believe Hebrew is much more profound than other languages in this aspect in that each word, if you take a look at the sharish, if you take a look at the root of the word, you can understand the meaning behind that which you are speaking about. I think we gave the example before that love means to give. If you look at the root, ahava comes from the word hav, to give. That gives you an insight into the nature of loving is to give. <clears throat> the Hebrew word for dog, kelev, like a heart. And what is it that we speak about when we speak about dogs in the colloquial fashion? Man's best friend. The reason that dogs are called man's best friend is because there is an aspect of a dog that is unlike other animals. There is this aspect of this unconditional love that exists with a dog to its master. It's like the heart. Kelev, kitlev, like the heart. That means that the name Kelev is giving you an insight to the essence of the animal. And what happened here, the Medrash says that what happened here is God brought each and every animal to man, Adam, and said, what would you call this animal? And Adam looked at the animal and Adam had the ability to see into the animal and to see the depth of the animal and what the animal's essence was. And Adam looked at the lion and Adam saw that this lion seemed to manifest might and it also seemed to manifest power and royalty, no less. And Adam looked at this animal and said, I want to call this animal Ari. And God said, yes, that will be its name, Aryeh. And then God did something very interesting. God brought the female lioness. And Adam looked at the lioness and was confused. And Adam said, I want to call this animal Ari. I want to call this animal lion but yet I already called that animal lion. There's something different about this animal that I can't put my finger on, God. What is it? And God said, oh, this is a lion, but it's the female lion. And Adam had to, at that point, ask, what is female? And God explained to him, there's this concept, male, female, male, female. And this happened with every animal. 
God would bring the next animal. Oh, I want to call this animal. There's a, there's a gentleness about this animal, but yet underneath that gentleness, there seems to be this force that just wants to break forth and just destroy. I want to call this dove. That's what a bear is. There's a gentleness, but yet there's a power unleashed underneath that is hidden. Bear, dove, ah, and then the female bear. But what's this? Oh, it's the female. Oh, this male, female again. Time and time again, every single animal, male, female, male, female, male, female. Wait, God, where's mine? Where's my female? Oh, you would like a female? Okay, now we'll give you a female. Gives you a tremendous insight into the male ego. Ladies, you need to understand that men need to come to a conclusion on their own. They cannot be told anything. God said it's not good for man to be alone. Even God himself can't tell man, you need a woman. No, I don't. Okay, great. So that won't go very far. So you know what? Okay, this is what I'll do. Let's bring the animals. Oh, look, there's male, female, male, female. Wait, I want one. Oh, okay. This is very like... Yes, it is. That's Torah. So insightful. That's Torah. To build up the desire to placate the male ego. Yes, yeah, but I think that it's the desire for something and male things. No, but the ego is. Therefore, you see clearly here that Adam was looking for something. Where's my partner? So the concept of marriage is a partnership. The concept of marriage is a partnership to build something that's outside of this narcissistic approach to life. That is the purpose of marriage. And that is what an azer kinegdo is. An azer kinegdo. Azer means help. Kinegdo means opposing, opposite, facing. That's what kinegdo means. You know, when you have two teams that are opposing each other, what is intrinsically understood about that is that these two teams are on the same level. You cannot have an Olympic medalist playing against a high school, you know, uh, high school playground. It just, they're not opposing each other. It's a joke. I remember when I was in high school, I worked at a camp, a summer camp, and the summer camp had, uh, you know, color war was, was huge in camp. And I was staff, so we were allowed to participate slightly. And so we had, <clears throat> so the, the, they had a hockey game. They had a hockey, and I loved playing hockey, so I was the goalie. And they had, for the culmination of the color wars, the final, you know, the, the final end where they have the big culmination and the awards, they brought in a, a sports person, a sports personality. They had brought in a hockey player, a professional hockey player, played for the Philadelphia Flyers, I remember his name, Rick McLeish. And I was asked to be part of this exhibition. I said, sure, ego. All, all blazoned. And they said, okay, well, will you, I played goalie. And they said, well, will you stand in the net against him? No problem. So I stood in the net and I will never forget this. Rick McLeish came out and he took the, his stick and he took the ball. It was street hockey, so it was a ball, not a puck. And he took his ball and he said to me where he's going to put the ball. And it still went right past me in the net. <laughs> there was nothing I could do about it. We were not opposing each other. It was a joke. When you have two teams that are opposing each other, it is clearly understood that that means that they are on equal footing. 
Otherwise, they are not op- opponents. This concept of opposing, though, is somewhat um, is somewhat uh, leads one to have a feeling of angst. Like, what do you like? Uh, well, now you're telling me that they're opponents against each other. And yes, in a certain aspect, that is the essence of marriage. There's an azer aspect and there's a kenegdo aspect. The goal of marriage is for two people to come together to build something. The goal of marriage is not so two people can come together to alleviate their loneliness. The goal of marriage is not two people to come together just to have a good time and spend quality life together. The goal of marriage is to build something bigger than myself. And that is what she's there to help with. The kinegdo means that she is not him and he is not her. That you have two opposite beings that look at life different that look at life from radically different perspectives and radically different viewpoints. What they have to share is a common goal. But this notion that uh, that they should be the same, no one wants to marry themselves. That would be incredibly boring. And that would defeat the entire purpose of what marriage is all about if you just married a duplicate of yourself. It would not force one to grow outside of themselves. That is one aspect of her being opposite him. Another aspect of her being opposite him is, and now we'll start to get into a little bit of the insight into the differences between men and women. In, I don't want to say Kabbalistic, because I have to be careful with that word, but in spiritual understandings, when we want to understand the essence of something, we are talking about the spiritual essence. When we want to understand what's the nature, what is the essence of man and what's the essence of woman, we are talking about what is the spiritual essence, what is the real deeper understanding of the male persona and female persona. And if you want to understand that, Judaism says all you have to do is analyze something on the physical level and that will actually tell you abstractly what it is representing on a spiritual level. For example... Anytime you want to understand a deeper concept, just look at the nature of what it does in the physical world. A table. A table, something physical that supports something that's on top of it. That's really giving you an idea in the spiritual realm that there's this concept of support. It takes four legs and a flat surface to create that support. That means that there's something about, in order for something to have stability and support, there needs to be four pillars. There needs to be four pillars that hold that item up. You could go ad nauseum in this, not ad nauseum, that was the wrong uh, phrase, but you could go at length in taking different ideas and analyzing them. We could do the same thing with male, female. What is it that male represent? What's female represent? Well, let's look a, take a look biologically, physiologically, what do male and female entities do? Well, they procreate. That's what male and female entities do when they are together. They procreate on a, just a very simplistic physical level. We're not talking about relationship here. We're just talking about the physical function of male and female. Well, how does that work? I'm assuming that I don't need to explain that in depth here. I'm assuming everyone here understands biology 101 to keep things lush and nucky. The way reproduction works is the male implants a seed in the woman and the woman then builds that into a fetus. That is actually a deeper concept than just the physiological phenomena. That means that the nature of men and the nature of women are such that men 
by nature provide a seed and women by nature build that seed. I used to be able to quote a tremendously funny comedian for this, but now you can no longer quote him without any negative connotations. Uh, but, but Bill Cosby used to have the greatest comedic routine that demonstrated this so profoundly. Bill Cosby, if he's guilty, should pay a tremendous punishment for what he did. But his comedy routine was hysterical. He spoke about, he was a sports aficionado, he studied sports in university, and he had a son, and as a sports personality, you want your son to grow up and play sports. So he says, ah, I got my son, I take him outside, and I teach him how to play football. And I say, come on at me, boy, and he comes at me, and I knock him down. I say, get up, boy, and come at me again, knock him down. Get up again, until he starts to get too big, and now he can knock me down. So I send him off to college. And now he's in college, we're in the stands, 50,000 people, and he's running, and he's knocking everybody down, and he scores a touchdown, and we're screaming, and I'm in the stands, look, that's my boy. And the camera zooms in, and he looks in the camera and says, Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. He says, Hi, Mom. And that is so true. Because, yes, who taught him football? The father. Who gave him the vision of becoming a football star? The father. But who nurtured that child? built that child, the persona that he is. The nature of men is to provide vision. The nature of women is to nurture and build that vision. This is generalizations, but generally speaking, this is the nature of men and women. When a man is providing that vision, a woman will build it. When a man is not providing that vision, well, then what you will have is a woman who resents that man. The colloquial phrase of who wears the pants in the family as horribly negative connotations that that comes along with, but there is a image that that is representing. And when a man is not being the man in the relationship, women resent that. And that is when she becomes his opponent. That is when she actually becomes opposite him. And that's why the rabbis say, Ezer Kenegdo, when he is meritorious, and he is doing the right thing, then she is his azer. And when he is not meritorious, she will become his kenegdo. That is the purpose of marriage, for two people to come together, work together, build together, something that is bigger than each one of them individually, something that is bigger than each one of them just combined to make two. It is something that is supposed to be exponentially bigger than them. That is what marriage is about. And love is a crucial component of marriage, but it is not the purpose of marriage. Love is an outgrowth of the marriage that is being built. If that is the purpose of marriage, well then the home, as we spoke about last week, and what you'll notice interestingly as we go on, I don't think we'll have the time to point this out each time, but you'll notice that the rest of this chapter, of the first chapter of Perkevos, it's pairs. It's going to be two by twos. The next generation will be two. The next generation will be two rabbis. And they are receiving it from the previous generation. You'll notice that there's always some similarity between the two. Last week, what did we speak about? We spoke about the home. This week also is the home. What's the purpose of the home? The purpose of the home is to be that place where the two of you build together. 
something outside of yourself, something much bigger than yourselves. And that's why now we can go into the Mishnah and take a look at what is the rabbi, what is Yossi saying. The very first thing he says, Yehi beischa pasuach larvacha. Your house should be open wide. Your house should be expansive. Your house should be something that allows growth, opens wide. <clears throat> the Talmud says that there are three things that are marvichin dases adam. There are three things that expand the mind of a person. That when we have the ability to think big, then we can actually create big things. But when we have a very tunnel vision, when we have a very insular vision, then we tend not to have the ability to think and create big things. The home, the whole purpose of the home should be an atmosphere that is expansive. That's what it means, pasuach lirvacha. It should be something which allows expansive thought and expansive building. And the most basic of that is that your home should be a place of chesed. Your home should be a place where you are doing chesed. It should be open wide, allowing people that need to come to your home. Your home should be an address where people know that's where we can go. If we want help, we can go to that location. If you have the financial means, then it means that people can come to your home and ask for tzedakah. If you don't have the financial means, then it means that people know that they, if they need something, that they can come to your home and ask, because that's the type of home you have established. There was a gentleman in the community, a wealthy gentleman, and he said to me, I'm following, he said that his father told him that one should never get upset when people are knocking on your door asking for help. He says you should get upset when they stop, because when they stop, either one of two things happened. Either you ran out of the ability to help, or they know that this is not the place that gives help. And either way, you should be upset. That should be your home. So on the very first instance, your home should be a place that is the vehicle to grow outside of yourself. It should be a place of chesed. You want to build a home that is the embodiment of chesed. People should know that this is where I can come to get help. Well, that leads to the second statement. Let the poor people be members of your household. Because one of the greatest dangers of looking at life as the means to an end, which is what it is, but there's a danger in looking at life as a means to an end. Because life is a means to an end. Life is me. Life is the playing field where I'm supposed to go out and become big, become great, build something that's much larger than myself until ultimately I fulfill that and move on to the next stage of existence. That life is a vehicle. However, there's a great danger at looking at life that way. Because if you look at life that way, then everything becomes nothing other than a tool. And if you begin to look at people as a tool, well then, instead of giving, you end up taking. Because the, you take the very thing that is most crucial to the element of giving. You take away their humanity. If you look at people as nothing other than objects for your ability to help, then you are not helping. Because the definition of helping is giving. 
And when you take away someone's humanity, you are no longer giving, you are taking. People have to be understood that they are real. People are real. People have feelings. People have pain. People are, are, are the embodiment of Hashem. Every human being is B'Tselem Elohim. And when someone comes to your door because you've created this home that is a home that is a place where people come to get help, that people know that they can come because they need, don't steal their humanity in order to help them. Instead, view every single one as a human being that is a member of your household. How would you want to be treated if it was your child that, God forbid, Rahman was forced to go door to door asking for help? How would you want them to be treated? That is how you have to treat people. That while you have to understand that my home is a vehicle and we are here to build and we should establish a home that is a home where people feel comfortable to come into because they need help and people feel comfortable because they know that they, that this is an address where they will be heard, we cannot look at them as nothing other than tools. You have to treat them as members of your own household. Make them feel that they are home. Reb Noach, my Rebbe, told a story. He said he had an aunt that lived in Paris after the war. She was living in Paris after the war and after the Holocaust and Jews would come through town and at that time there was not clearly post-Holocaust Europe, there was not a well-established Jewish community anymore. You didn't have kosher restaurants and you didn't have kosher supermarkets and someone coming through, traveling through would get to Paris and they would ask the Jewish community, well, where can you go to get food? And people would say, oh, this home, they would give this address. They wouldn't say so-and-so's home. They would give an address, and it was my Rebbe's aunt's home. And they would show up at her home, and she would bring them in and sit them down and serve them a meal, and they would ask, oh, what do you have here? And, they, and she would say, well, we have... And she would give them options. <laughs> well, we, menu. Like a menu. <laughs> She would say, well, we could. We have some chicken, we have some steak, we have some of this, we have some of that. And they would ask. And Rav Noach said, he said, one, on several occasions, the people would say, oh, you know, this isn't well done enough. And they'd send it back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and she would go and, and cook it more and come back. And when they would finish eating, on numerous occasions, they would turn and say, okay, what do I owe you? They thought it was a restaurant. <laughs> Because of the way she treated them. Mm-hmm. Come in, sit down, what can we get you? It wasn't, oh, oh, let me see what I can get. Oh, you know, I'm sorry, I can't help you right now. No, come in, sit down, what can I get you? As if your child came home from being away. Sit down, what can I, you know, what can I make you? Are you, you must be hungry. Mm-hmm. That is how she treated them. Now, that is not something that is easy to aspire to because that's a level, that's a whole different level. Nonetheless, to realize that that's the appreciation, that that's the perspective one should have. That we cannot look at people as vehicles for our seeking greatness. People are humans, cannot steal their humanity. So your home should be open wide. Your home should be a place that the goal of that home is a place to become great, a place to be big, a place to grow outside of myself. And when I'm allowing people to come into my home, I am not losing sight of the fact that I'm here to give them, not to take from them. Which brings us to the last statement. V'al tar besicha im ha'isha. 
Be'ishto Amru. Do not conversate excessively with the woman. We are speaking about one's wife. Now, I go back to what I said earlier. We must understand the nature of men and we must understand the nature of women. If this does not apply to anyone in this room, then you must, you must realize that A, if that's true, you are the exception, and B, you are not the one who can determine that, only your spouse can. <laughs> and vice versa. If a man has the audacity to think, well, that's not me, I have an incredible sensitivity toward the feminine ways and I am not like that, and you, fine, you may very well be the exception. You may not determine that, only your wife may. What is the nature of men and what's the nature of women? In one particular aspect, in one particular aspect, how do men and women process? And the way we process is radically different. Men tend to process internally. Women tend to process externally. What do I mean by that? Men tend to process on their own, whereas women tend to verbalize the process. Does it say you shall not speak to your wife? No, it does not. First of all, no, I'm not even, got, I'm not even at the excessive part. It doesn't say don't speak to your wife. Tell me, does anyone know Hebrew? How do you say speak in Hebrew? Ledaber. This does not say al tedaber harbe biisha. Doesn't say that. It says sicha. What is sicha? Sicha is specifically conversation. Conversation. In the context of what we are speaking about, in the context, remember, it must be in context. In the context of what we are speaking about, what is it that Yossi ben Yoezer is saying? Yossi ben Yoezer is saying, when you set up your home, set it up in a way that it is open, that it is a place where people can feel free to come in. Now, how are you going to process that as a woman? It's going to be very different than the way you process it as a man. Over Shabbos, our neighbor across the street, this will make me look incredibly irresponsible, but oh well, I think it's valid for the point. Our neighbor across the street came over very early Shabbos morning as I was about to head off to shul. And um, my kid, I was still getting dressed, and my kid comes and knocks on the door and says, uh, our neighbor across the street is at the door, wants to speak to mommy. Mommy was still in bed, wasn't feeling well. I said, all right. So my wife said, tell him someone will be at the door in a moment. My wife said, can you go see what, what she needs? So I went to the door, and my neighbor across the street said that she's been up all night with her infant, who has the croup and can't breathe, and is having difficulty breathing, and nothing's working, and she needs to take him to the doctor. Mm-hmm. And her husband's away for Shabbos. Would, <clears throat> would your wife be willing to just walk across the street, you know, every half hour or so, just to check on the kids? And I said, well, my wife's not feeling well, but I'll have one of my older girls go across. Is that okay? Yeah, no problem. And then she's about to walk away and she says, she says, you know, my, my kids are 11, 10, and 8. You think that's okay? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> I, I said, can your 11-year-old cross the street by herself? Yeah. I said, okay, fine. If there's a problem, she'll come across the street. Get the, tell us. And walks away. I go in the bedroom and I said to my wife, you know, I said, um, you know, so-and-so across the street came by, kid's not sleeping, she can one of our girls go across the street in about an hour to check on the kids? My wife says, what's wrong with you? 
She can't leave her kids alone like that. That's irresponsible. She says, no, one of the girls will go and babysit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. right. Yeah. yeah, different every way you grow up, and then wait till you have kids. <laughs> now, <clears throat> let's go back now and switch that example. And someone comes and knocks at the door and says, Oh, um, you know, we were having a Sheva Bracha next door, and uh, we were having a, a meal next door, 30 people at our home, and the power went out. Do you mind if we move it into your living room? <laughs> No problem. Come on in. <laughs> now, several women are laughing. <laughs> and imagine you're in your bedroom or you're in the back of your home. Your husband comes in and says, oh, just so you know, I just I just invited 30 people into the house. They're having a meal next door. Um, how are you going to process that? Oh, now, OMG. OMG. Now, are, are you going to be OK with it? Absolutely, if that's your perspective on life, if that's what your home is, if that's what you establish your home to be, that our home is a place where people know that they can come to for help, great. You're going to be okay with it. That is not the same as how do you process it. How do you process it? Well, the way women process is going to be verbalized. And what is the first verbalization? And yes, I'm giving examples. This might not be the first verbalization that you make, but it will be in the same category. Oh my God, do we have enough chairs? Well, what, what are we gonna do? Uh, uh, do we have enough food? Are they bringing the food? Um, uh, is there gonna be enough room for them? They're not gonna fit in the living room. Oh my gosh, but, but I didn't clean up. The living room's a mess. I can't have them in my living room. You're going to go through all of these verbalizations of how you're processing it until at the very end, Okay, let's get it done. At the very end, let's get it done. Now we have to speak about the nature of man. And the nature of man is, there is an incredible aspect of men that are weak, as we saw in the very story of, it's not good for man to be alone. Why doesn't God just say, man, it's not good for you to be alone. Here is your female counterpart. Because to be told that you need help to a man is a sign of weakness. Whereas the irony is, to not acknowledge that you need help is a sign of weakness. To go through life, an ego that is so large that you actually convince yourself, I don't need help, is actually a tremendous element of weakness. An unwillingness to accept help, not a strength. There is an element of man that is weak. And that weakness manifests itself so profoundly when it comes to how he relates to his wife. Vis-a-vis, be very careful how I say this. I don't want to make enemies at this point. I don't know where I am standing right now, but that weakness displays itself so profoundly when dealing with his wife vis-a-vis his ability to be strong. There's a common phenomena in relationships today known as passive-aggressive. What is passive-aggressive? Because they seem to be contrary terms. Passive-aggressive is when one is actually harming the other party by refraining from doing something, by being passive. In many instances, men will say the following, I don't want to say anything because it may hurt her. And will hold back from saying he's upset about something, 
We'll hold back by saying that he doesn't like something. We'll hold back by saying any form of constructive criticism, it must be constructive, any form of constructive criticism because of fear that it might hurt her. That is weakness, and it's actually destructive because it does more harm than good. Well, there's a tremendous blending of the sexes because of society today, but by nature, we're speaking about nature. In this aspect, this weakness will manifest itself tremendously as well. If a man is having a conversation, remember we're talking about conversation, about what should our home be, and he wants to have a conversation about, you know, I'd really like to set up a home that is constantly open, that people have the knowledge and the ability and the awareness that they can come to our home anytime they want. Even if she is absolutely okay with that, she's then going to process that. And as she's processing it, he's only going to be able to focus on and hear, oh, she can't handle this. Oh, this is going to be too much for her. This is going to be overwhelming. You know, every time I want to bring home guests, it's going to be, the, 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 I can't do that to her. And what's he going to do? Okay, no, we won't do it. And he will step back and pull back on the very foundation of what the home should be because of his weakness. That's why Yossi ben Yoezer says, al tarbe. Do you have to have conversations with your wife? How are you going to have a marriage without conversation? Mm -hmm. How are you going to have a relationship without the ability to talk and to have conversation about substantive things? We're not talking about idle conversation. That's obvious you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have idle conversation with your wife. What's your marriage about? Is your marriage just frivolity? But even substantive conversation, not excessive. Because if it's excessive, then that means that he's going to be present during all of her processing. And if he is overexposed to her processing, his weakness will take over and he will make a unilateral decision that is disastrous. We can't do this. And now you can understand, hopefully, why the Mishnah goes on. From here we say, and by the way, we're only speaking about one's wife. That's why it says, the Ishto, Ha'isha, the wife. Certainly someone else's wife. What do you, don't go and do this with someone else's wife. For now, I don't want to speak about why the Mishnah even mentions someone else's wife, but it's within the same context. <clears throat> now you can understand why he says, anyone who excessively has this form of conversation with his wife is goyre rala atzmo, causes bad to himself. It's not talking about her, it's talking about him. Mm -hmm. Excessive conversation of what type of home do we want to build? You definitely want to find agreement on that. You definitely want to find agreement on that. And <clears throat> that agreement should be in the beginning of marriage where you spoke about the values that you share you spoke about the values that you want to build, and now you found common ground, which is why you got married. Now that you've done that, you now move forward and you start to build it. And that should be, for example, a, a, a simple example. If I need to extrapolate more, I'll try to extrapolate more. Guests in the home for Shabbos. Should it be a lengthy conversation or Instead, should it be that the man provides vision and leads 
while the woman build it. And what do I mean by that? How many guests would it be okay to bring home tonight? Let's say you're in a community. I don't know. This doesn't happen so much in our community. I don't see it so much. But let's say you live in Yerushalayim, the old city, where at the Kotel, you could easily come home with 15 guests yeah. at the Kotel. You could go to the Kotel and come home with 15 guests. Now, would it be wise Would it be wise for a husband to go to, to the Kotel and unbeknownst to his wife at all, he shows up at home with 15 guests? That would not be wise. <laughs> That would not be wise. However, however, yes, it's, yeah. However, <clears throat> what would be wise would be before Shabbos, before he leaves for Shul, ask her, how many guests would it be okay to come home with? I'll tar- it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Don't sit down now and have a whole conversation about how many guests you can have at home, how many guests should we have guests because... Let's say you start the conversation, and yes, I am making this incredibly mundane and trivial, but I hope that you understand that I'm not trivializing women in the, in the nature of this conversation. Don't sit down now and have a conversation about whether or not it's okay to bring home guests tonight. Because in that conversation, she's going to process well, I guess it would be okay to have two. I guess it would be okay to have three. Maybe I don't. And and in the processing, all he's going to see is, well, this is overwhelming. As she goes through, well, do we have enough food? Let me think. How much food? Okay, the married women are saying this is true. I'll leave it at that. Because he's going to walk out the front door, the nature of man, he's going to be walking the show and go, nah, forget it. She can't handle it. When it has nothing to do with her. It has to do with him. She can't handle this. And he'll come home and he'll say, nah, there wasn't anybody. No, nah, nah, don't worry. We, we don't have guests this week. She already got like behind this idea. And meanwhile, 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 while he's at Shul, she's, she's still processing it. She's still, the chains are still going, still going. And then at some point, at some point, only you can say when that point is, women. At some, I can't, but at some point it just clicks. And next thing you know, he comes home and the table's set for 20. Right. And he comes home and it's like, Oh, wow. And now, you know what he feels? He doesn't feel bad that he didn't come home with guests. He feels bad that she went to all that work. <laughs> like, I, oh, God, I shouldn't. Or, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have said anything. That she, like, changed his mind on him without, like, giving him any clues. <clears throat> but either way, he'll be thinking, I shouldn't have said anything. Because he didn't, don't go through the processing too much. But now you can understand the context of the Mishnah when it says, he's causing harm to himself. He's, he is damaging himself. He's getting a warped understanding of marriage, of what he should be doing, of what she's doing. In the end, he will change his values as a result of it. He will change his very values. And in the end, he will negate what the very home is supposed to be building. That's what Yossi ben Yoezer says. Yossi ben Yoezer, I mean, Yossi ben Yochanan, Yossi ben Yoezer was the previous one. Yossi ben Yochanan, Yishu Shalayim, is telling us the home is supposed to be that place where the two of you build something bigger than yourselves. It should be the place where you grow out of selfishness out of inward thinking and outward thinking and building 
Azer Kenegdo. You're supposed to be building and building and building. And love is a function of that, not the goal. And therefore, your home should be open wide. It should be a place where people know this is a place of chesed. This is a place where we can go to to get help because these are givers, not takers. And in order to give and not take, you cannot steal their humanity. Don't turn them into tools. Don't turn them into objects. They are people. And as you process it, this mission is speaking to the men as well as the women, but it's speaking to the men. Don't be present excessively in her processing because it will damage you. You will not be a man. Your weakness will override your understanding of what you're supposed to be doing and you will make mistakes.